Well, hello and welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered podcast. It is October, which means we're all thinking about harvest. Well, at least those of us in the wine industry, maybe for those of you not in the wine industry, you're thinking about like pumpkin spice lattes or what candy you're going to be stealing from your kids, trick-or-treat bag. Uh, But for those of us who deal in the grape industry, we are definitely thinking about harvest reports. They're starting to come in. This is about that time. So this episode is really about what that means, these harvest reports. And I think if you're like me or anyone else probably listening to the show, at some point, you've probably Googled like, What was the 1987 vintage like? Was it good? Was it bad? And I mean, for me, aside from the fact that I was born in 1987, I think a lot could be inferred from that vintage. So we're going to be looking at all of the things that you're going to find when you make that Google search, which can be a little bit uh, overwhelming, I think, for some people. You know, you see it's a rainy vintage. You see early bud break. You see there was a frost in spring. And we're going to be talking about what all those things mean, how that translates into the glass. And I'm really excited because I think for a long time, this was something that didn't make a lot of sense for me. It wasn't until I moved to Napa Valley and started to see how weather affected not only me, but the grapes, because let's be honest, if I'm feeling the rain, the grapes are too. If I'm feeling the heat wave, the grapes are too. With me to talk about all that today is Clive Pursehouse, U.S. editor of Decanter Magazine based in Seattle and knower of all the things regarding Harvest Reports. How are you, Clive? I'm good. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. And I don't know if I know all of everything, but certainly we have compiled uh, harvest reports, you know, for all the major regions here in the U.S. over the last month or so. So some of it forecasting, some of it sort of getting some reporting from uh, winemakers there in the regions. And so, you know, it's interesting hearing you talk about feeling the rain, you know, being in the Northwest, we have quite a bit of rain. We had some rain. It's uh, maybe a slightly inconvenient time uh, here in the Pacific Northwest, about a two or three weeks ago. And so the first thing I think about is like my my uh, colleagues and my compatriots down in the Willamette Valley, because yeah. Washington is sort of in a desert. So they don't really they don't really see the rain. But those folks down in Oregon do. And so that's that's where my first thoughts go when we get an ill-timed rain. It's, it's what's going on in the vineyards and how does that impact it? Yeah, it's interesting. I think living in a region that is close to or in another winemaking region, you really do start to understand like how those things can play a factor. And we've talked many times on this podcast about traveling to wine regions. And I've often talked to people who are looking to get into the wine industry about, you know, the things that they can do to get better, to, you know, to find great jobs. And my first advice is always like, if you can afford it, if you can do it, make a move to a wine region, because I think it really helps to just illuminate a lot of the things that we see in the wine industry on paper and puts them in into real life. And I think yeah. weather is a really big factor when you feel the elements and you see firsthand how that affects grapes, it does start to make sense. So I think as you're listening to this podcast, you know, the more that you can get to wine regions and experience the elements and talk to people, the better. And I assume being in, in Seattle, I mean, you're, you're what, you're kind of equidistant from both the Washington wine region and um, we're like, because most, most of the wine is grown on the eastern side so the and Cascades, then you've got the yeah. Willamette Valley. They're like, what, three hours from Seattle each, right? Just about. Yeah, that's about right. To get to Walla Walla, it's about five hour drive. But just to get to like Yakima and you start to get to the, the western part of Oregon or of Washington's wine, eastern wine regions, it's about three hours. That's right. 
and the weather is probably more similar to the Willamette Valley. So I, I sort of have a sense of maybe what they're going through in a, in a felt way, yeah. as opposed to uh, what's going on on the eastern side of the state. Yeah, I fully did not realize how dry it was over there. I just went to Washington for the first time earlier this year, and we started on, on the eastern side. It's a desert. It's a complete desert. There is nothing there. They were like, we get like six inches of rain a year. There's, they've got everything. Tumbleweeds. They don't really have cactus per se. Yeah, lots of yeah. green. Uh, yeah. It's beautiful in a very different sort of, you know, rugged way. But it's 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 just completely different than where I live, which is almost you know it's a temperate rainforest. It is it is actually a temperate rainforest over here. So yeah, so wild. Well, we've got lots to talk about in regards to weather and wine and all those things. But before we get any further, we got to talk about what's going on in the wine world. All right, first on the docket. We have news dating back about 5,000 years to ancient Egypt. Clive, what's the oldest wine you've ever had? A 1940-something from the Jura. I don't remember what it was even. Wow. It was in my early wine uh, wine appreciation days. It was, an, it was an opportunity to buy this old bottle on Garagiste. Went in with some friends, the three of us, and we spent $300 on this wine. And it was, it was good. It was solid. It was sure. good. You drink yeah. it again. It's 1940s. I would. So this, is a, this is a bit older. They found some wine. I don't know if you're interested in drinking a 5,000-year-old wine, but they found some wine <laughs> in Queen Merit Neath's grand tomb in Egypt. All of the wine was sealed. They said uh, it actually looked like it was in pretty good condition. They also found some grape seeds, which I thought was really interesting. Like, can we get those and try to… Right. Propagate them. Yeah. Yeah. Her tomb dates back to Egypt's first dynasty, which is around 3,000 B.C., when Upper and Lower Egypt united into what we know now as the Ancient Kingdom. And they said they found hundreds of these large wine jars that were well-preserved. So I, for me, I feel like I don't have a huge like to stand on. But as the editor at Decanter Magazine, Clive, I feel like you should be invited to go and do a tasting of at least I one agree. of them. They got hundreds. I have to be honest. When you were talking earlier and you said they found – I thought you meant they found just like some vessels. But you're, say, you're saying they found wine actually. like They found like actual wine. Liquid wine. Yeah. That's wild. I would love to taste that. I, I have no idea what that would possibly even, you know, what that would even resemble. Nor, I mean, and I don't even know what grape they would have used to make it, if it was even grapes that they made it from. I mean, I right. assume since they found grape seeds, that would be the case. But, I mean, I don't think we're talking about Cabernet Sauvignon. I think we're talking about some fairly obscure, probably non-existent. Native North African <laughs> grapes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, when we talk about old wine, I mean… The queen was buried with all of these, all of these, I don't know, what was she, I think she was maybe going to take them to the afterlife. I don't know. Why did they? Save it for later. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope, I hope she has some fun with those in the afterlife. And if you get a plus one, I feel like I should, I should. I'll take you in there. for sure. Thank yeah. It'll be the two that. of us. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned the Jura, the other, uh, the other interesting article. This is actually from Decanter. All right. There was a, a wine theft, a grape theft in the Jura. Grape theft. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, living in Napa, I've always wondered like, you know, there's some pretty exclusive stuff, pretty big vineyards in there. Yeah. yeah. With like, you know, grapes that go for a lot of money. And I've never heard of anyone stealing grapes before. And so when I saw this, this is apparently not a new thing. This has happened before in the Jura. The thieves stole an estimated 2,000 to 2,500 kilograms of grapes from an area of vines spanning around 0.3 hectares, which is about 30 acres. And I loved, this is my favorite part. I love that they left like the first two rows of the block so that it wasn't until they actually went in to do the harvest that they even they realized that 
the thieves had taken everything. This has happened before, like you said. I think it was something I read. I read the article, um, and it was something like 150,000 euros worth of uh, fruit that they are uh, estimating mm -hmm. this would be worth. But I also, I think, positive news for our friends in the Jura is that it's uh, they're predicting a higher yield vintage uh, in 23. So they can absorb the the loss a little bit, hopefully. Yeah, these I I read that it was the harvest was set to rise 35 percent on 2022 and around 64 percent versus the five year average. So it's a good year for for a theft. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a silver lining. Maybe the thieves were like, "You guys got extra, we can take it." Right. But I, Mike, only question is, and I I mean, Europe is so protected in terms of like labeling, right? And it's not mm -hmm. like there's that much wine coming out of the Jura. So my only thought is like what are they doing with these grapes? Because it's not like there is not a surplus of grapes in other places. So like, For do sure. you have any, yeah. any suspicion as to like what actually happens with this? Maybe it's a house wine at a restaurant or something where you're not oh. actually even, you know, bottling and, and releasing it. So it's, it's, you know, maybe you own a bar or a restaurant and yeah. you're selling the wine there. That's the only thing I could think of. Or you just... Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Something that would yeah. never need to like be legally labeled. Because I mean, it's not like, it's not like the US or Australia or South America where you can just bottle something and, you know, it can be whatever. In Europe, it's, right. you know, it's very specific and it's, it's legally tied. So you couldn't put Jura or even a more specific appellation on there unless you could prove where those grapes came from. If you don't right. have receipts, then it's not going to happen. So, Yeah, I think it's probably going to go to someone's restaurant or bar. And who knows, maybe this guy that he stole it from or this woman that he stole it from owed the money. Who, who even knows, right? It could, be, right? it could be some bizarre backstory that we'll never hear. I think most of what they stole was Trousseau. So if you see any Trousseau... Based on that, it could have been someone from Brooklyn, you know, because Trousseau <laughs> is so popular. <laughs> Uh, and they're gonna, you know, who knows? Uh, that that grapes popularity. The hipsters are after the trousseau from Jura. Yeah, and they just I don't have it. the budget to buy their own fruit. That's the only other. What that's another take. option B. Last but not least, going bringing it back to my hometown of Napa Valley. Uh, some exciting news. We've been talking or speculating the last couple of years about what's going to be happening with the next generation of states, you know, so you have these heralded right. estates that were founded in 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, and some of which are still owned by the families. Some have been sold off to big corporations. But one in particular that I think a lot of us have had our eye on because they've actually had a sale before has been the Arajos. And so the Arajos, for those of you who don't know, Bart and Daphne Araujo purchased the Isley Vineyard back in the early 90s, a, a heralded vineyard in Napa Valley up in Calistoga that they stewarded for 20 plus years, you know, brought their wines to fame, super high scoring wines. And I think what's really interesting, and I don't think they get enough credit for doing this in Napa Valley, Bart and Daphne Araujo, when they owned Isley Vineyard, they were responsible for bringing that vineyard to a biodynamic certification. They were among the first in Napa Valley to do that. I didn't even know that. I think to see it on a small scale is one thing. To see it at that level of elite winemaking is another thing. So I think, you know, they, I think they had hired Steve Mathias and to handle all of that, but yeah, they converted it to biogenomics. They then subsequently sold it. Um, and it's now, you know, Stuart's now brought back to the Isley family name. And then from there, they actually started another winery called Achendo Cellars. They also started Wheeler Farms, which is a custom crush facility that right. Achendo Cellars is made at. And so Bart and Daphne have decided to hand over the reins to Greg and Jamie Araujo, who are their children, and their now they're going to be taking over, which I think is really cool. It's it's great to see that 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 torch is being passed, and I know you guys had reported on that in Decanter. 
Yeah, I think it's an exclusive. Actually, Jonathan uh, wrote that news story. Nice. Yeah, you know, I think I think you pointed it out earlier. Like, unfortunately, it doesn't happen often enough, and we're seeing much mm-hmm. more acquisitions of family wineries by larger corporations or conglomerates. So it's always nice to see the next generation sort of step in. And I I've, I know some winemakers in, in both here in Washington and down in Oregon where you know, they have these conversations with their kids and they're worried about something that they've put Mm -hmm. 20, 30 years of work into. Their kids aren't interested. They don't want to force them to do something they don't want to do. And so, well, what happens, you know, inevitably, uh, that's what happened with Ponzi vineyards. They were acquired by Balmajay and and it was just simply a matter of their, the next generation didn't want to do it. And so it's great to see, like you said, with the Arajos, that that legacy is going to continue and it's going to be a family owned business as well. That's, that's important. I'm excited to see that torch being carried. I'll be fingers crossed for it to continue to the third generation, but really exciting news in Napa Valley as you know, we sort of navigate what's going to happen over the next decade or so. This is your cue, as always, before Clive and I pick up our glasses to enjoy a wine for the next segment of our show, to invite you to drink with us. So if you are part of the Wine Access Unfiltered podcast wine club, which I promise we're going to find another name for because it's just too long for me to say. (laughs) If you're a member of that wine club, go ahead and grab the other Rioja in your shipment. I did promise two Riojas uh, this time around. So this one is going to be from CUNY. This is the Monopole Blanco Seco 2019 vintage. So this is the white Rioja. There were two. There was a red, there was a white, and there's a whole episode on Rioja. If you want to pause this, refresh yourself on Rioja and then come back to this because we're going to be focusing on harvest reports, uh, vintage reports, harvest notes, and drinking this wine. If you're not a part of the wine club, this is your cue to do that, to sign up. All the information is in the description below. I look for these wines. I source these wines with the wine access team. We find some really, really cool bottles and we ship them to you about every other month. There's four bottles in there and uh, it's 120 bucks plus tax, but including shipping. And then you get 10% off all of your wine access purchases. Uh, and I said, also mentioned since Clive's on the podcast, that if you're like, eh, this doesn't really sound like the wine club for me, Decanter also has a wine club. So maybe that's more up your alley. So you can join yep. his wine club and hang out with him a little more often. Uh, if you're like, I liked this show, but that girl, she was annoyed. And we want to hang out with Clive more. There you go. I that's your vibe. It, but- I'm going to leave, leave you guys with that. We'll be right back with the CUNE Monopole Classico Blanco Rioja and a little more conversation with Clive on vintage reports and harvest notes. See you in a second. All right, you guys. Hopefully you got some white wine in your glass. I not only have white wine in my glass, I also have little cheese. One, because I'm hungry. Two, because cheese and this wine are delicious. So I encourage you to do the same. This is, as I said, a white Rioja. This is going to be 100% Vera with the exception of one thing, and that's Manzanilla Sherry. So before we got on this on this show, Clive was like, what's the story with this wine? Tell me about this wine. And I was like, it's a really interesting story, actually, because this was actually one of the most popular wines in all of Europe for a long time. It was a, it was a restaurant staple. They made it for a long time. And then in the 1970s, when these barrel-aged whites sort of phased out in popularity, they decided to discontinue it. And in 2015, CUNE, which by the way, that should ring a bell for you. If you've never heard of CUNE, this is like one of the great benchmark producers of of Spain. CUNE, with this label, decided to reignite it. They decided to bring back the one of the original winemakers because this is a very unique method of winemaking. So this starts a long process. Are you ready? So the grapes are softly pressed, then they're clarified in concrete, then they're fermented in stainless steel, and then the wine spends eight months 
in oak botas before, at the very end, they add a very small amount of manzanilla sherry, which if you smell this wine, you're like, oh, that does kind of smell like sherry. <laughs> so it's pretty cool. And um, 2019 as a vintage, you know, this was a vintage that was reported to be a little bit light in terms of quantity, but very high quality. And the region of Rioja has said like, this is the vintage. 2019 is the vintage. So a great vintage from here. And we'll talk a little bit about yields and quantity and what all that means in a second. But if you are smelling this wine, you're getting a lot of nuttiness and you're getting some of this like vanilla, you're getting some floral stuff. Uh, and then you taste it and you're like, wow, that's got zippy acidity. You're kind of on the right track. That's exactly what I get in all of this wines too. But Clive, where are you on this wine? Are you a fan? Oh, I love it. I love this wine. Yeah. I just want to, mm-hmm. it's almost like if Sherry's not, you're fully your jam and it's maybe a little, you know, it can be a little complicated to, to fully totally. appreciate this this wine brings in some some lift and some brightness but gives you that nutty complexity that you get from from sherry so it's i yeah. think it's di- dynamite i think it's great and it, anytime i like i taste this wine like immediately all he wants like a salty snack so whether it's cheese or like some sort of like tinned fish anything that's like butter salt and acid is like yeah it's beautiful wine it's really beautiful and it will open i will say you can start this wine on the chillier side, but don't be afraid to let it get down to room temp. This is a wine that like texturally is really going to take on all of those great sort of soft layers. That's really nice because it's sort of juxtaposed up against that really bright acidity. So I I love the balance of this wine and not to, you know, get too geeky about it. But for me, this is a great wine to just sit and relax with. It's not like a part, like it's not a wine that you're going to serve to a huge group. I don't think because this is like, you know, this is a little esoteric. It's a little weird. But if you've got like, you know, a fun dinner that you're planning or you really want to branch out and taste something really different and unique that is going to set your palate afire, this is kind of the wine for that. And I'm I'm really excited that we got to include it in the shipment because I've now gotten to enjoy it many times since doing all the recordings for this. And I I snack with it every time and it's just as delicious. We should talk about your job, Clive. Sure. You're an editor. Yes. What does an editor do at at a wine magazine? So I'm the U.S. editor for Decanter. So I'm the um, the one full-time person that we have here in the States on the magazine side. So my job entails a few things. It, in, it entails uh, working with some other editors, whether it's the magazine folks or the website folks, to sort of plan content for the U.S. For, you know, so specifically U.S. wine regions is what, I, what mm-hmm. I'm talking about. We have some major ones like... Um, Napa and Sonoma and Oregon, Willamette Valley and Washington State and New York State, uh, that's particularly the Finger Lakes. And then we also have some minor up and coming ones that might be in the Southwest and places like Arizona or Texas, New Mexico, Georgia. I just got 18 wines in the mail from the state of Georgia yesterday. Oh, so nice. I'm, I'm interested to taste those. Had some sparkling wine from Tennessee last week. Um, Maryland's making wine. Michigan obviously makes wine. So it, it's really about trying to figure out what's the right balance of, of storytelling between these established places and established names and these also these up and coming places and really wanting to acknowledge the, the progress that's being made there and the unique elements of maybe using native grapes or, or hybrid grapes in some of those regions. So, and then also I write about uh, Oregon and Washington state for the magazine as well. So it's a, it's a bit of a little bit of everything. This weekend, I'm going to Chicago. We're partnering with uh, the International Wine Expo, and I'll be representing Decanter. So there's there's a little bit of everything that we do. We have an event in New York each year in June, and so I did. I hosted a master, two master classes there. Uh, so it's it's a little bit of everything. What a fun gig! How did you get into yeah. that? 
it's a little bit of a convoluted story, but I started <laughs> writing. Uh, when I moved to Seattle from Pittsburgh about 20 years ago, I had a wine blog. And this was back in the days when wine blogs were sort of uh, rare. There were a few of them, but they weren't mm-hmm. sort of ubiquitous. And we didn't really have, you know, you didn't have Instagram and you didn't have sort of these more snippet uh, formats like TikTok or Instagram where you could present things in, in minutes or in an image or whatever. So it was a more long form um, writing. I did that for a few years, and then I uh, became the culture editor of a cycling magazine, a cycling lifestyle magazine. I raced okay. bikes competitively, pedal bikes. Sort of ironically, the, the magazine I was I was writing for was purchased by a large outdoor brand and, and summarily shuttered. But right before that, I was riding a mountain bike and in Jordan, of all places, obviously prior to what's going on in the Middle East right now. And I, I crashed and I, I broke my pelvis in four places. Oof. Yeah. And I was in a wheelchair for a little while and I couldn't walk for nine weeks. And it was during that time that actually Decanter had approached me and asked me if I wanted to, to take this job. So it, that's more or less. Kind of Timing what is everything, huh? Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> don't break your pelvis, kids. Don't break, your, don't break your pelvis. But if you do, maybe a wine gig is on the horizon. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at these wine jobs and they're like, how do I get into that? And I think I think you're, I mean, not that you're not special, but I think you hear a lot of these stories where it's, you know, you you kind right. of hop from one lily pad to the next and next thing you know, you're the U.S. editor for a major wine publication and receiving, how many how many shipments of wine do you think you get like every week? I probably get between 50 and 60 bottles a month on average. And then if I'm working on a a specific story, it could be uh, really problematic, the amount of wine that shows up. And it's it's work. You know, I think that's what people ask me. Oh, do you core in the wines and keep them? No, I don't. Like I... I want to open all the wines and get them out the door. I give them to my neighbors. So what I do is I taste at the middle of the day. I take a picture of everything once I've done. And I I send a text out to my street and I'm like, hey, these are on the porch. Come get them. I don't have any problems with my neighbors. My neighbors love me. So I imagine like me, like, you know, you have to be careful about how much you're drinking. Right. And especially being, you know, sort of a a cycling enthusiast, health is sort of at the forefront of of your mind. Yeah, I mean, thanks for bringing that up. I I think it's really a challenge. And I think for this industry, it's something that we don't talk enough about, you know, is the implications, not just of the alcohol, um, but that's certainly one of them, but also the lifestyle. As you Mm -hmm. probably know, Amanda, when we're hosted on these trips, you know, it's multi-course meal after multi-course meal after multi-course meal, and it's wine or it's cocktails before and that's not normal. And, and, and to be frank, it's just not healthy, you know? And so mm-hmm. I had sort of a aha moment in the spring where I was doing all of that. And I, it, I was like, whoa, man, you know, I'll be 50 next year. And I was like, I have to, I have to figure this out if I'm going to continue in this role and figure out how to do it in a way that's healthy for me. So I spit pretty much regularly, you know, all, always, I was just on two press trips and I probably drank six glasses of wine in two weeks. Yeah. Uh, and, and I like to keep it like that. You know, if I have, if I, this wine is marvelous, this is maybe something that I'll, <laughs> I'll taste later as well, but um, it's really fantastic. But, you know, I, it's just really a matter of uh, seeing it as work, tasting it, writing the notes, doing what I need to do to do a story or write a review of a wine and then giving it away or dumping it down the sink. I hate to say it, but that's yeah. sometimes what's got to happen. So you can't yeah. drink all this wine. You'll create problems for yourself. The same way on on press trips, it's you know I don't I don't think I ever get drunk at any point on a press trip. I mean, one because it's there's a level of professionalism that I feel I have to maintain, but also yeah, I think from a health standpoint, it's important. So it's interesting 
how much wine is in front of us at all times. Um, but I think even more interesting is what you have to do to assess all of these wines that are given to you. And so when you look at vintage reports and you're creating these harvest notes, how are you going about that? Because you, you as we already sort of laid out, you live near two major wine regions, both mm-hmm. of which you cover. So I imagine you're traveling to those places a little bit or at least keeping tabs yeah, and then you're also sure. tasting wine. But what is the what is the MO as a as a writer, as an editor, when you're putting together these these reports? You know, interestingly, I just released uh, yesterday the Washington 2020 Vintage Report came out. Right? So that was three years ago and I was doing a different job at the time. Mm. But I lived I lived here and I was here when the smoke rolled in from down from the wildfires in Oregon and California. Um, and I remember it. And I've always been involved with wine, but not, not as much, to, not to the degree that I am today. So I think there's a few things, right? You're reflecting on the year that you maybe remember or maybe you're in the vineyards that you experienced. And then you're thinking about conversations you've had with winemakers or wine growers about the vintage that was going to be. And then a couple of years later, you're tasting that wine, right? Maybe it's mm. a year for white wines or nine months. And maybe it's a couple of years or a year and a half for, for red wines. And I think you're reflecting on, you know, does this, does this wine feel reflective of those, those meteorological conditions that we, mm-hmm. we all experienced? And then what does that mean for a set of wines? And so, you know, do the wines, do they have similar, you know, traits that are maybe higher in acid than they were the year prior, or maybe they're riper than they typically are from a region. And so I think it's really thinking about those conditions that you recall or you experienced or the region experienced, and then how those create a set of wines or a, or a you know, a vintage of, of wines from a particular region. And it was interesting to hear you talk about this, this region or this vintage in Spain, because 2019 was a great vintage here, you know, in mm-hmm. Napa, in Washington, certainly in the Willamette Valley. And so it's interesting. You usually don't get that, you know. Right. I won't say my birth year, but it's it's uh, quite a bit before yours. And it's it wasn't a very good vintage anywhere but Napa and Piemonte. So those are like the two places where I buy old wines from when I typically, I sort of every year for my birthday, I'd open a birth year wine and go to this particular barbecue restaurant here in Seattle. So I mean, so it sounds like, I mean, this is like a three-year process basically per vintage that it takes you to write something like a harvest report. So you're starting in the vineyard or you're, I mean, you're starting with looking at the weather conditions. Do you, do you start writing it in that vintage or no, no, I just kind of look back? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you remember it. So like 21, I just did the 21 vintage report for the Willamette Valley. They, they didn't really produce 2020s. It was such a destructive Mm. vintage from, from a wildfire point of view. But for example, 21 was big here. And I think you all experienced down your way too, because of the heat dome. And that was something that, you know, was just bizarre. I'd never experienced anything like that living here in the Pacific Northwest for 20 years. And so that was kind of the major marker. But really, I mean, I I don't do that. Perhaps there are people who do who start writing notes on on a vintage sort of from their own first person experience. But there's so much information available. I mean, winemakers, they have these encyclopedic memories and they can tell you insane specificity about duration, you know, flowering, bloom, when the rain came, when it didn't. But I I look at like regional and local news reports, weather reports. I'll go back and dig up data specifically about rains because sometimes the winemakers are wrong. You know, they get the dates wrong about when the rain came or how much rain it was and stuff like that. So really for me, it's more of some digging through the archives, uh, if you will, 
maybe if I have an anecdote uh, from that year that I personally remember, I might bring that up. But for the most part, I do it based sort of some research based stuff and then mm-hmm. see how that shows up in the wines. Uh, do a lot of quoting and try to get as much sort of first person uh, information. I think that's important. And I think that makes for a better vintage report. And I would, I would differentiate the two between a vintage report and a harvest report because a harvest report, right, we're doing like sort of in real time, hey, what's happening in Napa? What's happening in Sonoma? Like obviously right. this year was an interesting one for those two regions because they were so far behind normal with all the rain and the snowfall prior to that. Uh, something that they really needed, but it's, it's, it's created new challenges for them that some of the winemakers I was looking at Jasmine Hirsch's uh, Instagram and she's like, I've never seen this in my life as a winemaker, you know? <laughs> and so I think for some people who aren't in their sixties and, and, and fifties and sixties and seventies, they've never experienced conditions like this, but this is kind of a right. throwback to what some of these regions used to be like before climate change started to grip us uh, globally. So yeah, I just do a lot of research. I do a lot of talking. I, I, you know, there are definitely people who, and I could, I could do a whole, show just on getting quotes from people in the wine industry but there's definitely people who are great resources in terms of you know their ability to to put ideas out there steve mathiason is certainly one of those people i mean just a great interview every single time Uh, and then there are people who just they give you one sentence like literally like here's the one sentence and i'm like okay that's not that's not really helpful yeah when people ask me, like right now, for example, like my dad the other day was like, how's Napa, Napa doing? Is it going to be a good harvest or a bad har- a good vintage or a bad vintage? And it's always a tough question to answer. So I would – I'd throw that ball in your court. Like what do you think makes a good vintage? What do you think makes a bad vintage? And can we categorically define them as such? I think you can when it's a catastrophic situation like 2020 was for a lot sure. of the West Coast, right? Those were bad – generally bad vintages. When you can't make wine or when only a few people can make a little bit of wine, you can say, objectively, this is not a good vintage. Now, the rest of it, I think, is really about taste and opinion. Mm -hmm. Because 2019, for example, for me in the Willamette Valley is a beautiful vintage. And I liked it more than 21, which was a wonderful vintage. But 2019, it was a cooler year. And I like those wines that show more elegance, a little more complexity, a little less ripeness, more acidity, you know more delicacy. And so for me, that's more of a preferred, like a preference for me. I think where the trick comes in for someone in my position is how do you write about that? Because it's, Mm. it's not just about me, right? I'm trying to, to capture how the wines turned out from a more objective point of view, if it's person, if it's possible for a person to ever be objective in that way. And so I do think it's, you know, to your father's question, right? Is it going to be a good vintage? Well, I think what's exciting this year for California wines in general is that probably going to be cooler and it's going to be, you know, higher acid wines. It's going to be a little more elegant, a little less ripe. And I love wines like that. So I'm really excited to see what comes out of Napa and Sonoma for 23. I do think it created some challenges for people, but I think for those who've been around for a while, they know how to manage that and making sure that, you know, we get, get the fruit in before there's any, any big fall rain events or, or frost or things like that. So I think it's a matter of like objectively, there are probably some rare times, unfortunately, when you can say this is a bad vintage. And hopefully that doesn't continue to be more common, right? Because we know wildfire problem is not going to go away. You know, this is a good year. I just knocked on wood um, in, in terms of that. But I think based on the average, it's more about your opinion than a good or a bad. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard to be objective in your position. I think there's a lot more nuance, and I think 
to answer the question, is this a good vintage or a bad bad vintage? Outside of these, you know, we we would love to call them outlier events, but maybe that's not the right terminology any longer. But outside of outlier events like wildfires, massive hail that destroys entire crops, you know, things that are just completely outside the realm of what we would consider normal. Correct. There is this sort of this nuance that you have to account for, and you you've laid that out right. Cooler vintages in most places mean that you're going to have wines with less ripeness, higher yep. acidity. That is what that translates to. So if you're looking at a harvest report or, a, you know, vintage chasing notes, you see like, you know, Napa 2011, great example, right? Napa 2011 vintage, a really a, a vintage that was characterized as a quote unquote quote, bad vintage. But the 2011 vintage, though cooler and had a lot of weird rain events that happened towards harvest, have ultimately produced wines that have a lot of elegance, that have been yep. a little bit more age-worthy. Yep. Now, if you were to take those same tasting notes and put them in somewhere like Bordeaux, that could actually result in a wine that's maybe not as age-worthy, right? You look at the 70s in Bordeaux, where it's, you know, it's all these a string of what we would call, quote, bad vintages. And those wines haven't been as age-worthy. So you kind of have to take into account not only your drinking preference, but also the region and what we would consider, you know, normal or not normal for those regions. If you were to just break down, like, what are some of the general categorizations of different vintages? They would be cold vintage, warm vintage, drought vintage, low yield. What what else would yeah. you throw in there? You know, sometimes you have these vintages where they're very high yielding and you get poor quality wines as a result mm. of it, right? Like the wines are just not sophisticated. They're not complex. Um, and that might be something that contributes to a, a not as good vintage. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, I think cool, cool years, wet vintages, and that's, you know, rare where you are, but more common up here in the, in the Pacific Northwest, particularly in the Willamette Valley, where you could have 2011 was considered a wet, a wet year. Same thing with 20, 2007, but those are two of my favorite vintages, right? Because mm. to your point that the wines aged wonderfully, I had a 2007 Beaufrere. Uh, with Mikey Etzel in the summertime and it was just singing you know and so yeah. those vintages which you know out of the gates they oftentimes can be dismissed by critics and, and wine writers uh, they really can't hang around and they have the acidity you know the the molecular uh, structure of, of acidity is what keeps wine from oxidizing and so that in and of itself allows wine to age now you need other components and structure and things of that nature as well but it, it does make for more ageable more elegant wines for sure. Yeah, you may not get that concentration of fruit at the onset uh, in a you know wet vintage, but if you hang on to them a little longer, and if there's fruit there to be, you know, if we're talking about like a really wet vintage where there just was no ripeness, then maybe not. But if we're talking right. about you know just a, a weird sort of one-off, you know, those are those are wines that can be really beautiful. I think 2011 is a great example of that, both in Napa and in Oregon. What about things that maybe people could potentially ignore? You know, sometimes we read harvest notes like early ripening or like delayed bud break are those things like where do you think that the consumer needs to focus and where are things that we can ignore a bud break you can certainly ignore (laughs) and you know unless there's a a hail event you know and then you have if you have early flowering um so it's less about bud break maybe more about flowering and then is there a weather event that's frost or whether that's like a hail you know even up here we get these dynamic storms in the springtime which you know, it, it's sunny out and then it gets dark and then it starts pouring rain and then it dumps hail, right? 
And so that can create a lot of damage in the vines uh, and that can reduce yields. Um, and, you know, as we've seen in Burgundy over the years, we've seen entire vintages almost wiped out from those hailstorms in the spring. So I think you can ignore some of the, the process, including like when did veraison happen? It's just really mm-hmm. not super important. The things that matter are like, you know, were the, were the grapes phenolically ripe when they were harvested? And I think one of the things that's really tricky, and, and this is something that I see all the time, and, you know, just reflecting on the 2020 Washington Vintage Report, which I just did, one of my top scoring wines was the, um, the Harrison Hill from DeLille Cellars, mm. 13.4% alcohol. And there were also wines that I tasted that were 15.8%, you know? Wow. And so I think it's about ripeness and sugar levels and how that converts to alcohol and the finished wine. And that's going to really affect what you like as a drinker, perhaps much more than something like when, when physiologically was a plant doing X, Y, or Z uh, along the, you know, the, the calendar year. Those things matter much less than, than the, final, the final wines that are you know, when they're finished or when they're harvested and what the, the bricks levels is are and how those translate into alcohol. You mentioned low yielding. You've sort of touched on this a little bit. I'm curious because when I see low yielding, a low yielding vintage, right, this can result from a lot of different things. In Napa, a lot of times low yielding is the result of a drought vintage. Sometimes like in Burgundy, it's the result of a frost or, or a hail and sometimes it's just, you know, it's just a weird year where it was just low vigor. Do you feel like low yielding vintages ever correlate to quality in any capacity? I per- personally do. Um, I think I don't have to sell wine to keep the lights on. So it's easy for me to say, you know, I find that when you have lower yields and you have smaller berries, especially because that, that could mean there's less less bunches on vines, but it mm-hmm. also could mean that the berries are small. And what that usually means is they're also concentrated. And that results in, I think, more interesting and more flavorful wines. And it might uh, lend, you know, layers of complexity and nuance to the wines as opposed to these big, juicy uh, grape bunches that, that come off, uh, which you know, result in a lot of wine and maybe more more profits for the wineries and the winemakers. But in terms of like objectively or trying to be objective and, and um, assess, you know, and evaluate uh, a vintage, I, th- I find that lower yielding vintages tend to produce wines of more nuance and complexity. And the other thing that you have to think about is like, all right, if it's low yielding, that means obviously, to your point, maybe it's going to be higher quality, but also there's going to be less of it to go around. So you can right. kind of anticipate maybe a price Prices go up. Here. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, things are going to be allocated harder to get. So like that's if there's a wine that you really want from a low yielding vintage, that's the time to start making friends with the people that you buy wine from. You know, right. call Laura Coffer and just be like, hey, I saw that, you know. It's going to be a low vintage. Do you think that we can maybe, you know, score an allocation? Set aside a couple bottles for me. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Befriend your wine buyers. They can help you out a little bit. And then in terms of like drinking windows, because I know, you know, this plays Harvest Reports, Vintage Notes, these all play a role in what you're thinking the drinking window is going to be. How do you approach that as a writer, knowing that there is, again, so many nuances to consider what the ideal drinking window is going to be? I think certain wines age better than other wines. Like I would imagine this wine would age quite well, this Spanish wine that we're drinking. I mean, it's essentially like fortified, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I've been surprised is another thing I would throw out there. I've tasted wines that I didn't expect to age as well, and they were just getting started. Mm. And so I do think that drinking windows take some experience 
that's really the only way you can project is if you have tasted a region and sometimes producers are certain producers that just make really ageable wines. I find most people based on their palates and sort of like progression of, of how you understand wine and appreciate wine are going to appreciate a wine a little bit before it's prime as opposed to on the backside of that and when True. you're tasting tertiary flavors and so it's always I think a better idea to, to drink a wine a little bit early than it is to drink a wine a little bit late. I'm with you. I, I think people do tend to wait a little longer than they should, especially with special bottles. To borrow from like the finance world, past performance is not always indicative of future results, right? right. So as you're trying to figure out where this wine is going to go, I mean, shy of a crystal ball, all you really have to go off of is what you've experienced in the past, aggregating all of the information that you have at present and you're forecasting out to the future. And so there really is no sure way to know whether a wine is going to age the way that you think it does because wine does not age in a linear fashion. And working at a restaurant like Press where I, you know, I'd serve wines all the way back to the 50s and 60s, I know that this is not for everyone. I know that I've opened right. enough bottles of modern wines or modern producer, old producers that are still making wines in the modern sense today. And I would open these wines and people like, oh, this doesn't taste like the wine that I just tasted at the winery. Sure doesn't. It's not supposed to. <laughs> That's always fun to do, right? When you have friends who aren't really into wine and you open an older wine and they're like, whoa, what is this right? Is this wrong or what's going on with this thing? I'm like, this is what it's supposed to do. It's definitely not for everyone. Yeah. You know, and that's why, you know, some of these wines that even stylistically you've seen in, in Piedmont, for example, where they've just made some decisions as a region to make more approachable wines earlier, yeah. right? So less astringency, less less tannin and, and more approachability in its youth because, you know, wine culture is changing and who's drinking wine is changing and you want you want new people to come into wine. And if they taste yeah. something and it feels like they got hit in the face with the two by four, that's not appealing. And so it's, and it's not something that's easily understood. And so if you want to make things you know, simpler for people, you have to make the wines maybe a little more approachable in their youth in order to do that. No, that's a good point. I, I actually really hadn't considered before is that, you know, with, in the advent of technology and the fact that we are in this information era winemakers aren't making wines in the same way that they were in the 50s and 60s in every capacity. But the one that I'm specifically referring to is like, they are looking at what they, where the market is. They're looking at what the climate is. They're looking at everything, not just this is the way that my grandfather did it. And this is how it's right. been done for centuries and centuries. And so I think you're seeing a little bit of an iteration when it comes to winemaking to account for some of these vintages that are a little bit more in flux or out of pattern for what they would have normally expected. And I think that in and of itself makes this idea of like good vintage, bad vintage really hard to account for because if you have winemakers doing that on your behalf, then you really don't have much to worry about other than these outlier events I had talked about earlier. Yeah. And I think of, you think of someone like Spotswood, you know, in Napa, who yes. they always make an elegant, fresh Cabernet, no matter what, that's how the wine is going to to turn out. And yeah. so it's, it's, it's those kinds of uh, producers who they make picking decisions to, to make that style of wine. And it's not that those wines aren't reflective of vintage. They very much no. are. In some ways, that sort of elegance is much more reflective of a vintage than a, an overpowering alcoholic style of wine might be. So much really helpful, insightful information. I feel like this conversation illuminated a lot of things for me that I didn't know initially. So thank you for that. Sure. Where can people find you in Decanter Magazine? On the cover, uh, right? Yeah. You're always on the cover? <laughs> I wish. No, you know, it varies from month to month, obviously. I'm, I'm online is certainly decanter.com. 
uh, is certainly a good place to, to find me. There's a lot of stuff out this morning. So we have uh, the Washington Vintage Report came out yesterday. Uh, there was a short little snippet on Walla Walla 2020 uh, from the Walla Walla Valley that came out this morning. There's a story that I didn't write. There's a story on Priyanka French down in Napa Valley oh, that yeah, came out this morning. Yeah. You know, check out the website. Uh, the magazine is a little bit tougher to get here in the U.S. We're working on that. But uh, you can find me next month is November. So I actually wrote a story about Willie Schaefer, the Mosul producer. I was over nice. in the Mosul Valley. Nice. I love Willie Schaefer Riesling. It's cool. Those wines are spectacular. And, and it's, I don't know if you've ever been over there, but it's just this mm-hmm. tiny little family household and they had no wines in their house like to sell. I mean, it's just like, you know, <laughs> everything, everything that they only have four hectares, you know, which is, it's about 12, 12 acres, um, which is nothing, you know, and the wines are so popular and, and they're so hard to get your hands on, but they're still really well, well-priced. Um, yeah. We have a, a Paso vintage report coming out in November as nice. well. And Brian Cohen wrote that. So oh, yeah. look for me certainly, but you know, our U S contingent of writers, Jonathan Cristaldi is our NAP correspondent. Janae Gaither is our Sonoma correspondent. We have a, a number of other folks who contribute on a, on a pretty regular basis. Decanter, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Decanter, this is an incredible publication that has been really, really popular, more so in the UK and, and Europe and in the mm-hmm. US. I, you know, I think among industry professionals is something that we really look to not only for, uh, you know, updated news, but also vintage reports and um, just you know, general wine knowledge. So a great sort of like crossbreed between some, if you're looking for like real information, but then also like information that's approachable, I think Decanter does a great job of making consumer friendly information that still feels educational and insightful. So definitely check it out. Clive, it was a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for being on here. Thanks for having me. For those of you listening, don't forget, like, subscribe, and review this podcast. We are so appreciative when you do that. And of course, if you want to join us in drinking along with me every single episode, you can go ahead and join that Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast Wine Club. All the information is below. Until next time, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.